Welcome to Detroit Today. I'm Jake Neer, sitting in for Stephen Henderson. We've got a lot to talk about, about science today. We're going to spend the hour talking about the urgency of science literacy and about why we need to do this now and why it's so important. A little bit later in the hour, we are going to talk with celebrity astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson. He'll be in town later this month to give a talk called An Astrophysicist Goes to the Movies. We'll talk, we'll have a little bit of a fun conversation about the movies and sort of the science that they get right, the science they get wrong, uh, and just what is the importance of making sure that we all sort of understand why that's important. And uh, on that note, this week, the United Nations released a devastating study. One million species of animals and plants around the world face extinction, many within decades. That's according to the summary of a comprehensive 1,500-page climate report. Why is this happening? The UN says humans, us, are accelerating the speed of climate change. It's because of our, our population is increasing rapidly and we're engaging in destructive activities such as large-scale farming, fishing, and poaching. What does this mean for our future and the future of our planet? What are the biggest implications right here in the Great Lakes region? And what can we realistically do about it at this point? I've got a couple people here to talk about that. Two people who think a lot about these issues. Nick Schreck is an environmental law expert. He's the director of clinical programs and an associate professor of law at the University of Detroit Mercy Law School. Nick, welcome to Detroit Today. Thanks for having me, Jake. And Susan Casey Lefkowitz is the chief program officer at the National Resource Defense Council. She directs the NRDC's Climate and Clean Energy Healthy People and Thriving Communities, Nature, and International Programs. Susan, welcome to Detroit Today. Thanks. It's good to be with you on the show. Yeah, that's that's a lot of programs, and I really appreciate your expertise on this. <laughs> so, um, uh, you know, this, this report came out, and I think that it was sort of shocking for, for everyone that heard it, even people who I talk to who think about these things a lot, that this was really... A, a devastating finding by the UN. Uh, I'm curious from both of you what your initial reactions were. Nick, I'll start with you. Well, yeah, I mean, it really puts into very, very sharp relief um, the the challenge that we face when we look at, you know, how can we continue as as a human species on this planet um, with all of these threats that are that are, are faced by all of these other species. And so, you know, you go through what's what's interesting about this report too is it looks at all of the different reasons why we have so many species that are that are threatened with extinction, and you hit on a few of them at the beginning. But you know, it's it's loss of habitat. Um, just you know, here in the state of Michigan, since colonization, we've lost about eighty percent of our wetlands in the state of Michigan. Um, so that's just you know one one thing to put, to put put it there. But you know, pollution. Looking at the amount of plastics and other types of pollution we have going out into the environment. Um, you mentioned population, um, human population, and that continuing to to grow um, exponentially around the globe. Um, and, and then, you know, climate change, of course, which is a huge threat to so many species, um, you know, here in the Great Lakes region and, and around the world. And so you put all those together and then you start going through and looking at all the studies that track populations of mammals and amphibians and birds and insects. And you and then you, you start kind of looking at like what if you have a 
slight degree change in temperature or if you have more fragmentation of their habitat, you know, what does that mean to those species? And they compiled all those numbers, put it together. And, and it's, you know, again, very, very dramatic to look at that list and to look at, you know, the, the millions of species that are, that are threatened in such a significant way. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it's very, very sobering and something that, you know, I hope, and, you know, we were, we were just talking before the show, you know, I hope that this is something that can really push our policymakers, decision makers in Washington and in the state of Michigan into action. Because, I mean, this is like, you know, five alarm fire, all mm-hmm. the alarms are going off. We mm-hmm. need to respond quickly. Absolutely. So, Susan, uh, I want to get your reaction as well. What, When you first saw this report, what, what went through your mind? Well, for a long time now, we've uh, had a good sense that this is what was happening. But to see scientists from all around the world coming together with the kind of detailed analysis that shows the depth of the problem and the immediacy of the problem, that essentially Earth's fundamental systems are breaking down. Mm. Um, it raises questions not only about um, the nature of the wildlife, the plants, the, you know, the streams and the rivers and the oceans that we love, but it also raises questions about our own ability to survive. And, and that's why, you know, what Nick referred to, that the report also immediately goes into addressing the kind of transformative change that we know how to do. We know how to do these things. We just need the political will to get there um, to show that there is hope. It, you know, it isn't as though this is a report that says the world is coming to an end and there's nothing you can do about it. Mm-hmm. It's a report that says our systems are in danger. This is a warning signal, and there's a lot that we can do about it. On that note, is there a certain element, though, of this that is not reversible? I mean, I, with with talking about a million species that are facing extinction right now, according to this report, um, can we can we reverse course entirely on the impacts of this, Susan, or are we, um, can we only mitigate uh, what happens from here? There's certain species that are on the path to extinction now, and that would be hard, if not impossible to reverse. But for the bulk of what we're talking about in this report, it is reversible if we set whole new systems in place to protect um, the natural systems that the species depend on. And if we change the way that we run our economies, um, you know, the thing that we've known for a long time, especially when it comes to climate change, is that we can have different sources of energy that are much less impactful, like renewable energy and, and relying more on energy efficiency and not have the kind of impacts that fossil fuels have and still have a good life, still have a good economy. We're seeing that in Michigan, which has really stepped out recently as a real leader on climate action. I want to read a a piece of a New York Times article about this. It said, Scientists have cataloged only a fraction of living creatures, some 1.3 million. The report estimates there may be as many as 8 million plant and animal species on the planet, most of those being insects. But just the, the putting that into that context, uh, the fact that we have only been able to document 1.3 million species, and this report is saying that a million species could possibly go extinct. Um, Nick, I mean, that, that seems... Uh, terrifying in in some ways that I mean that that is a I mean uh, that was the first thought that I thought okay so a million what does that mean in terms of biodiversity right so I mean that is um you know a little early to do my math but you know (laughs) one eighth of our of our you know global species are at risk of extinction not counting species that are already extinct um and so I mean think about it like this so over 
you know, several millions of years on this planet, you had all of these different species evolve and develop to get to where they are today. Um, you know, humans, we've really only been a part, a significant part of that ecosystem for about 200,000 years. And, you know, if you look at like how long it would actually take to replace the species loss, we're talking about these 1 million species, we're talking about, you know, 3 million years or so, mm. right? And so, I, you know, obviously we, we don't want to have to get to that point where, you know, humans are gone off the face of the earth and, and um, you know, you're going back into the, you know, pre-dinosaur era and all of that. Um, but there, there are great things we can do today to, to avoid that from happening. But it does put it into perspective of how significant this threat is to our life here on this planet. And, you know, I think when we're going about our, our daily lives, um, you know, getting the kids to school and I'm um, going to work and um, doing all these things that we have to do it, it's we often don't think about the impacts that, that our you know individual actions have and our collective actions have on our planet and so it's it's reports like these that I think can kind of refocus us it's like okay what do we need to do to ensure you know not only that we have a healthy place to live and thrive during our lifetimes but you know thinking like you know many indigenous cultures where it's that, that sort of seven generations I mean that's the way we need to be thinking um, that far into the future to make sure that this planet is a healthy place to live it's interesting to me to think about how people will react to a report like this whether it will be like you're saying sort of jumpstart Starting people into action, or if it's a feeling of powerlessness in some ways. I mean, I as someone who uh, for a long time has covered politics, I mm-hmm. sort of liken the reaction to things like this to the reasons that some people don't vote. Right? It's right. that my individual action here won't really the the chance of it affecting the greater outcome is small or or almost non-existent statistically. At least that's the, how we sort of think about these things sometimes. Uh, you know, when for for people driving around or, or listening to this right now, as on an individual level, what do you tell people, Nick, when when people express that sentiment to you? It's like, okay, well, you know, I like my plastic forks, right. or I, you know, I I like my car. I like the the ability to drive a car that uses fossil fuels. What do you tell them? Well, we all have a, a role to play here, and, and our individual choices do have an impact. Um, so, I mean, there are things that, that we can do as consumers to definitely send a message to product manufacturers and to companies. I mean, we can make better choices about the types of products that we buy and the types of, of food that we put into our bodies um, on an individual level. But, you know, we really need collective action here. And I mean, there's some things that, that really give me a lot of hope, like the, the global movement by children to try and force our, our legislators to take action a, across the globe. I mean, r- really looking at this from a, a a point of collective action. You know, we wouldn't have our Clean Air Act and our Clean Water Act and our Endangered Species Act, which is you know very relevant to our conversation today. We wouldn't have those laws if people didn't take to the streets in, in the ni- early 1970s and, and demanded that our Congress take action. And that's, I, I think, really where we're at. I mean, we're, it's at the point where we need to demand and, and, and force um, some change because, you know, otherwise we're really facing a perilous situation um, 15, 20, 30 years into the future. And I should say, so I keep talking about things in the future. I mean, we're experiencing a lot of these impacts today. Mm-hmm. You know, we're, we're experiencing um, a, a warming planet. And so, you know, it's not like we don't have the evidence that we need to take to our, our elected officials, to take to people that are running for office and say, get them on record as to the, you know, they, they agree that this is a crisis that we have to face and that we need to make some some sacrifices. I mean, let, let's let's not sugarcoat this, right? Like there, there may be some changes, there may be some bumps along the road as we shift to a renewable energy economy or as, as we um, figure out ways to vastly reduce the amount of land that we're using for agriculture, et cetera. There's going to be some bumps along the road, but what's the trade-off? Is, mm-hmm. is it, you know, having a habitable planet or, or is it not? And so we really need to put this into perspective because these are, these are the choices that are at stake here. 
You're listening to Detroit Today. I'm I'm Jake Neer sitting in for Stephen Henderson. Uh, we are talking about a new UN climate report that says one million species are threatened with extinction. And I'm speaking with Nick Schreck, an environmental law expert from U of D Mercy, and Susan Casey Lefkowitz, the chief program officer at the National Resource Defense Council. We also really want to hear from you on this topic. How does this report make you feel? I mean, how did you react when you heard that there are there's this massive threat to biodiversity on the planet, and we humans are the cause. Is it a lot to handle in, mentally for you? Do, you? do you feel empowered to make a difference? Do you feel hopeless in some way? Do you think that your actions on a personal level can make a difference? And if so, what are you doing in that case to try to reverse this, at least do your part to do so? Uh, I mean, some people are opting out of having children. Are you one of those people? Because, And this is, this is a decision being made for um, environmental reasons in some cases. What changes are you already noticing in our climate, and what are you thinking about in terms of ways to do about it? Uh, so the number, of course, is 313-577-1019. Again, that is 313-577-1019. Again, we really want to hear from you on this. Um, Susan Casey Lefkowitz, uh, before uh, that, we were talking about collective action here. Sometimes I wonder if you know if if the way that we react to these things is very individual that we talk about uh, you know that 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 everyday citizens need to do more, and maybe we, you know, sometimes I worry that maybe that is distracting from the idea that governments, that that corporations, that bigger um, entities that that actually can have more of an individual impact uh, here are are sort of shifting the blame. Uh, I'm curious what you think of that and sort of how um, people should react in terms of, uh, you know, something taking action that can really make a dent in these issues. Yeah, well, what Nick said earlier about people pressuring um, their governments and the corporations that they, you know, buy things from to change, that is, I think, one of the most important actions that individuals can take because um, governments ultimately represent us and they respond to us. And enough people um, sending a very clear signal that we want energy efficiency. We want solar and wind. We want electric vehicles that come from clean electricity. You know, we want to have big protective areas. We want to be able to use our Great Lakes and know that they're going to be there for our children and our grandchildren as well. You know, these are things that um, the more we can make sure that governments are hearing that clearly and that we might well vote people out if they're not being the kind of um, champion of, of nature and climate that we need, that's a really important action for individuals. Sometimes, of course, I also think that this is an opportunity to draw a direct line between not just uh, climate issues, but all of sort of our political systems here, Nick, when we talk about these things, when we talk about how we pressure politicians, um, you know, there, there's this also gets into the issues of the power that corporations have uh, mm-hmm. in our in our uh, political processes as well, um, you know, that and, and the power of money in, in this and that there are so many interests that are uh, tied to making sure we keep the status quo for, for reasons of profit and making sure the shareholders are happy. Um, you know, that that seems like another thing that um, we don't often talk about those two issues together. But in this case, I think it's a pretty clear line. 
Oh, for sure. And you, you look at the outsized influence that corporations and their lobbyists have had, in, you know, just, just taking Michigan for an example. Um, I mean, you're right. I mean, the way that, that our system is currently working in this state is that we've, we've got um, term limits. So we have a lot of our legislators that before they really develop expertise in complicated issues like climate and energy policy, they're already gone. They're term limited out. Mm -hmm. So, so we, we rely on these, these corporate funded lobbyists um, to, to, in many ways, actually write the legislation that, mm -hmm. that is discussed in Lansing. And so, yeah, I mean, that's a huge problem problem. But again, this is where, you know, I, I think, you know, not to your discussion with Susan was really good about, you know, is this a, a me problem, a personal problem, or is this something that we should we should look elsewhere to try and address it? Well, I mean, we're going to have to take a little bit of this on ourselves and, you know, pick up the phone, call our elected officials, and then get people on record when they're running for office. You know, talk to them about environmental issues, talk to them about public health issues, talk to them about water quality, get them on record, and then hold them accountable. Because otherwise, there are those voices, those powerful voices, those lobbyists that are there, and they're in their ear, and they're donating money to their campaigns and all of that. The only way that we we collectively as people can address that is through voting and through holding them accountable once they're in office. All right. Coming up on Detroit Today, we'll continue this conversation about the UN's alarming new report on biodiversity with Nick Schreck and Susan Casey Lefkowitz. And we want to hear from you. Lots of people wanting to get in on this conversation. The number is 313-577-1019. Lynette in Gross Point Woods, Trisha in Livonia, Aaron in Detroit, Madeline in Mount Clemens. Stay on the line. We will get to you after this. And make sure also to tune in Monday. Stephen will be back for an hour-long conversation about impeachment. Should Democrats open impeachment proceedings or would they be wise to focus on policy and the 2020 election? That's coming up on Monday on Detroit Today. You're listening to Detroit Today. I'm Jake Neer, sitting in for Stephen Henderson. Today, we are talking about a shocking new report from the UN saying that the that biodiversity is in great peril on the planet. One million species of plants and animals threatened with extinction. I'm talking with Nick Schreck, an environmental law expert at the University of Detroit Mercy Law School. Also, Su Susan Casey Lefkowitz, Chief Program Officer at the National Resource Defense Council. And we have lots of people lined up on the phones, Nick. But first, I want to ask you really quick, right here in the Great Lakes region in Michigan, uh, you and I were talking a little bit before the show right. about how, you know, we don't often think necessarily mm -hmm. about uh, just Michigan in this context. But uh, right here, I mean, there are, uh, th I think we could learn quite a bit, especially on the, in the ways that we choose to live and where we choose to live, about how we are sort of playing a role in this sort of uh, global trend of uh, especially land use change. Right. Yeah, I mean, I mean, think about in Michigan, where our population over the last uh, few decades has been pretty much stagnant. You know, a little uh, we've grown a little bit over the last couple of years, but basically flat. And yet, at the same time, we continue to gobble up um, more land for suburbia, um, for, you know, different, we're basically shifting areas that were forest, wetlands, or agricultural into um, suburban sprawl. And so, you know, it's something for us that when we think about like what we can do as individuals, you know, uh, do I need the 
3,500, 4,000 square foot house out, out in the suburbs? Um, or can we look at, you know, infilling some of our already developed urban areas? I mean, and these are the kinds of things that choices we can make as individuals. And then, of course, that can also reduce your carbon footprint by driving shorter distances than, you know, commuting in from, from the distant suburbs or, or whatever. So, so yeah, I mean, there's real impacts here. And just one other thing to flag for people, this report also looks at um, invasive species or the, or the movement of species around the globe. That's something we're very familiar with here in the Great Lakes. You know, the economic impacts from zebra mussels, quagga mussels, the threat of Asian carp. I mean, these are all species that because of our travel around the globe as humans and the movement of goods and services, we're facing, um, our species are facing threats from that type of activity as well. So again, being very good conscious consumers is something we can do to try and help um, stop that, that movement of invasive species um, around the region. I mean, just on the show recently, we spoke with uh, the uh, urban planning um, uh, official from Canton Township, and we've been talking a lot about Canton lately as part of our Crossing the Lines series here. Uh, basically, I mean, right there is a great example. If, if you're a listener and you heard that show of, um, you know, the questions, there's the one sort of one last area of this township right. that still has trees, essentially, there's a forested <laughs> area of this, this township, and they're continue they just approved uh you know or they're they're in the process of approving more spread out into that region. I mean, I think we can see it up close here in Southeast Michigan as well. Absolutely. So we want to we want to go to the phones here. Uh, Lynette in Gross Point Woods, you're on Detroit today. Hi, good morning. Hello. Can you hear me okay? Can hear you fine. Great. Thank you for covering the story. I've been paying attention to it all week. It's really close to my heart. I work in development, and, you know, big shout-out to developers that are doing adaptive reuse. We need more of that. You know, Bedrock Detroit, the Detroit 2030 group that are really pushing for developers to reuse buildings, materials. But most importantly, I feel like we really need to get to these young people in the schools, in junior high and high school, and make this a priority for them. They're the ones that are going to make the impact going forward and push corporations and businesses by saying we want to work for people that are green, that are LEED certified, that are doing the right things with development. Um, You know, I grew up in the 70s, and everything on TV and in school was about the environment, saving the planet, and somehow that disappeared, and I don't know what happened. I think we got too into pushing the easy button, you know, Mm. technology and plastics and, you know, everything is is disposable, only it's not, right? It's not even biodegradable. And so we're, we're killing our planet. It's horrifying. Mm. Lynette, I really appreciate that uh, that perspective here. Thank you so much for calling in. Uh, Susan Casey Lefkowitz with the uh, with the NRDC. You know, this is not, I, I don't think environmentalism is a, is a new thing at this point, right? That, that there are many people um, who have been in power for a long time that grew up in an era of thinking about these things. I'm curious what you think of, uh, you know, why, how we got to this point and, and why we haven't really woken up until, I guess, arguably, you could say that we've woken up more recently to uh, a lot of these issues. But uh, why has it taken so long? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, My organization, the Natural Resources Defense Council, we were founded um, at a time when there was sort of an awakening sense of environmental damage and the fact that we needed to make changes in laws. So at this point, uh, almost 50 years ago, But one thing that I find really heartening is the wave of younger people who really are stepping out right now, especially on the climate issue. We've seen, um, you know, walkouts from schools across Europe, around the world, here in the United States, by students who are saying, this is our world, this is our life, and we can't vote yet, but, 
you in power need to know that you, we will hold you accountable. Um, mm. We consider you responsible for the continuing damages that are happening. Um, and it is, I, I think that it's actually changing the political um, discussion around the world, but especially in Washington, um, where this kind of new energy from younger people, uh, this this idea that you're going to have a whole new generation of voters holding elected officials accountable, it's starting to really resonate. Hmm. Let's go to Aaron in Detroit. Aaron, you're on Detroit Today. Hi. Thanks for taking my call. It's almost uh, difficult to even describe what I'm what I'm thinking about this. I'm, I'm wondering with, with the level of uh, denial or, or systemic denial from certain sources, even all the way to the presidency, and then uh, with the evidence being so overwhelming, and and now they can't deny it. Uh, but still, they're 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 putting out information uh, throughout the uh, different forms of media to discourage people from acknowledging the truth about where we are. Hmm. What is really going to happen if if we don't come together as a planet? Is is it really uh, some hope for us changing this? Mm-hmm. If we still have people who value money in the in the immediacy more than uh, safety in the long. Paul, you know, uh, I, don't, I don't know what we can look forward to. Mm, Aaron, uh, I really appreciate that that call. Thank you so much for uh, for for injecting that in the conversation, Nick. Um, I I think you could hear in Aaron's voice a sense of sort of um, feeling of powerlessness or hopelessness in terms of people that are making the biggest decisions in in our country and, and right. around the world. Um, you know, one thing that I think about is that. This is all sort of happening. This awakening is happening, maybe in part because there is so much more information now about what's happening and the fact that we are seeing reports like this and they're easily spread and people have access to these this information. But it's also, on the other end of that spectrum, very easy to spread false information right. or anti-science uh, or pseudoscience as it relates to this, that we're in this we're in this era where there's a real struggle between we just don't have a, a common set of facts. At least that's what it feels like sometimes. Right. I, I mean, I think that's where, you know, looking to make sure that we're getting information from reliable sources, that we're getting information from, you know, people that are actual scientists and that actually study this stuff. Um, you know, I, I think there's been some unfortunate attack and pushback on just uh, People that have that have knowledge, you know, the, the people that, that are that are these scientists that are doing this work. I mean, we, we need to um, look to them to help us get, understand where we're at, and then to, and to kind of get out of um, this problem that we find ourselves in. And so, yeah, I mean, we have to be careful before we share things on social media. You know, make sure that it's not from you know um, my my uncle in his basement dot com <laughs> um, that it's actually coming from a, a reputable source, and that we're we're not helping to exacerbate this problem of misinformation that's out there. Mm. And just another thing to maybe give the caller a little bit of hope. And, and I'll, I'll say this, that, you know, our natural systems are incredibly resilient. Okay. Um, I mean, we, we have done so much to, to damage and to threaten our, our ecosystem. And yet we're still here. And in many ways, it's still functioning at a, at a very high level. Um, it's just that we need to give nature its space to do its thing. And so that's where, I mean, I think, again, looking at 
setting aside more land in this country as natural areas, reforesting areas that um, have either you know previously been urbanized or that now have been um, depopulated. I mean, there, there's things that we can do to just give nature its space to be able to do its thing. Mm. And and it, and it will, right? We just need to, oftentimes as humans, we want to get in there and micromanage everything and try and, <laughs> you know, innovate our way out of a problem. Just give it its space to do its thing. And that, that'll go a long way mm. to help. Um, Jordan in Royal Oak, we only have about a minute left in this conversation, but I really wanted to get you in here. So if you could uh, let us know what you're thinking in maybe about 30 seconds or so. I really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. I just think one thing we've got to figure out how to reconcile as you know, citizens in the region is we all sort of espouse these values. We care about, you know, limiting sprawl and being more sustainable. You know, and that points to adaptive reuse, like was said before, in an urban infill. But that all sounds great until it's in our neighborhood. And then it's too much traffic. I don't like how the buildings look. It mm-hmm. casts a shadow. And I think we just have to figure out, you know, if we're going to do this, if we want to have a smaller footprint, a smaller carbon footprint, a smaller societal footprint, it means density, and it means mm-hmm. being thoughtful about where we can have that. Yeah, Jordan, I, I, I especially that. appreciate that perspective from Royal Oak, where I also live, and know that those conversations in our own community are a little bit fraught, that is for sure. Uh, Susan Casey Lefkowitz, I wanted to give you an opportunity to just end here on, you know, when, when you talk to people about these things and what they can do, and sort of, uh, you know, if, if they're looking for that little bit of nugget of hope, what do you tell them? I always tell them that there is hope. Um, we have, a, we know what we need to do. We have clear paths forward when it comes to clean energy, when it comes to setting aside land, when it comes to doing what's needed to protect um, the species that we love and value. The clear thing is to make sure we're building the political will because the actions will come with um, great opposition at the same time from entrenched industries. And so that political will will take all of us acting together. Mm. Susan Casey Lefkowitz, Chief Program Officer with the National Resource Defense Council. Thank you for being here on Detroit Today. Thank you. And Nick Schreck, environmental law expert with the University of Detroit Mercy Law School. Nick, always a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you, Jake. Coming up, we'll talk with someone who has spent his entire career promoting science literacy, astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson. He'll be coming to Detroit for a talk on the 20th. We'll talk about that and the urgency of understanding science.